If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series, the Pentateuch. The time of Noah and the flood is a bit of a mystery in the scriptures. However, in the book of Genesis, we do get a glimpse of what had transpired for approximately 1,656 years from Adam to Noah. Due to the long lifespans leading up to Noah's flood, it is speculated that as many as 5 billion people or more could have been alive at that time. When God sealed the door, to Noah's ark and the deluge came upon the earth. One thing is for certain, that the lifespan of people was greatly reduced when capped to 120 years due to the effects of sinful human nature living so long on the earth. Now Noah was only nine generations removed from Adam, and his father, Lamech, was 56 years old at the time of Adam's death. First Chronicles chapter 1 verse 1. The genealogical record from Adam to Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Malchalier, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Noah was 500 years old when he had three sons. Genesis 5.32 After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When Noah was around 600 years old, the flood waters came. It took him at the most 100 years to build the ark. Genesis 7.6 Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. The world before the flood. So what was life like on the earth before Noah's flood? What kind of people were they? Whatever the Bible has to say is the only facts we can go by. Everything else would be speculation. When God had created Adam and Eve, he told them in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
By the time Noah came on the scene, the world was a very evil and wicked place. In the 1,656 years before the flood, there could have been up to 5 billion people on the earth. The depravity was widespread, and it was inward, continual, and habitual. Mankind was utterly corrupt, bad in heart and in conduct. There was no good in them. The whole bent of their thoughts and imaginations was completely out of line with the will of God. Flesh was on the throne, God was forgotten, or openly defied according to the scriptures. Genesis 6-5 The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It is generally believed that there were only two branches of the race of mankind, one a godly line through Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, the other an ungodly line through Cain. This perception is a result of Seth's ancestral descendants being traced from Adam to Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 23 to 38. Certainly, Noah had his three sons, who were descendants of Seth. But what about all the other descendants of Seth besides Noah, who were also alive at that time? They were destroyed by the flood along with all of Cain's descendants. The reason I have pointed this out is because of how different folks interpret the following scripture, particularly who the sons of God are referring to in Genesis 6.1. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. In some cases in scripture, sons of God may be identified with angels or messengers in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Son of God, in a unique sense. Believers today in the New Covenant are called sons of God, because of their relationship to Him. In the Old Testament, however, sons of God are a special class of beings that make up the heavenly court, angels. In the Old Testament, the only two references to the sons of God in the NIV are made in the passage that we just quoted in Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. The other reference to the sons of God is mentioned in Job 38 verse 7. As an order of angelic beings existing before the creation of mankind and joining in the symphony of the universe when the earth and all things were called into being, at one time, they were all holy, before one-third followed Lucifer in a rebellion, for they were all called the sons of God. Job 38.7 While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. The same verse in the King James Version is rendered this way, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Remember in Genesis 3.15, when God prophetically spoke of a Redeemer that would come as a man, the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, speaking of Jesus defeating Satan and taking back what he had stolen from Adam. So the obvious question is, what was Satan to do about this promise that God had decreed? Do everything in his power to keep it from coming to pass, of course. Job 1 verse 6, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. If Satan could pollute the race of mankind, deliver them all to absolute wickedness, where no one served God, 
then he would prolong his kingdom indefinitely. So from Cain murdering Abel until the birth of Jesus, born of a virgin, human history was comprised of the pointless pursuit of Satan trying to nullify God's word by infecting and corrupting humanity with wickedness and somehow prevent the coming of the Messiah and Redeemer of mankind. There were giants in the land before Noah's flood, the Nephilim. In the Hebrew, that word means a bully, a tyrant, or a giant. Genesis 6-4 The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Genesis 6-4 in the Amplified states, Concerning the Nephilim, existing in those days before the flood, and also afterward, after the flood. So according to the scripture, there were giants on the earth before the flood and also afterward when the sons of God cohabitated with the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. In other words, fallen angels cohabitated with human women produced a race of giants. What is also interesting is that the Bible teaches that there were giants after the flood, like the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, and Goliath and his brothers. How could the theory of the sons of God, supposedly being Seth's line, be able to marry the daughters of men, who would be Cain's line to produce giants when all of Cain's descendants were killed during the flood? These ancient heroes or giants became the small g gods of the heathen neighbors of Israel and Greek mythology. The fact that giants were partly of supernatural origin made it easy for men to regard them as gods. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian who lived around the time of Jesus, said many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of their own strength. These men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. Josephus goes on to say, There was till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day. This is Josephus, who lived 2,000 years ago, talking about bones that at that time were still on display. What we have here is a race of giants, the offspring of angels cohabitating with human women to produce a perverted freak of nature. These guys were twisted, wicked, evil tyrants who were huge in stature. God's law of reproduction from the beginning has been everything after its own kind. It is not possible, then, that giants could be produced by men and women of ordinary size. It took the supernatural element, the purpose and power of Satan and his angels, to make offspring of such extra size within the human species. They then produce others of like size instead of ordinary-sized people. The Nephilim are considered by many to be giant demigods, the unnatural offspring of the daughters of men, mortal women, in cohabitation with the sons of God, angels, or fallen angels, that is, according to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. This utterly unnatural union, violating God's created order of being, was such a shocking abnormality as to necessitate the worldwide judgment of the flood. God's elect angels have been forbidden by God to procreate themselves. God created them as a set or fixed number, never to increase. Matthew 22, verse 30. Jesus said at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. 
Remember the one-third of the fallen angels who had rebelled with Lucifer and the pre-Adamite creation. It was some of these fallen angels who crossed the line and took on human form in order to produce this race of Nephilim giants in an attempt to pollute the pure human stock descended from Adam and created by God. However, God swiftly judged those angels who committed this grievous sin. Jude verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. 2 Peter 2 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. The world had been corrupted and contaminated. Satan had introduced a race of half-human, half-fallen angel offspring. Genesis 6.11 The world had corrupted. 2 Peter 1.4 Their ways and was full of violence. Angels can still appear in human form according to the scripture, talking about elect angels. In Hebrews 13.2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. The angels that went to Sodom and Gomorrah looked like regular men. In Genesis 19.1, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. The Profile of a Giant So what were these giants like? Interesting enough, the same tactic by Satan to contaminate the purity of the human race was again repeated after the flood. It is from these post-flood references that we can build a profile of these half-angel and half-human Nephilim giants. God made a covenant with Abraham in order to establish a nation through which the promised seed of the woman would be made manifest in order to undo Satan's treachery in the Garden of Eden. There was a race of people called the Amorites. The Amorites were one of the major tribes or national groups living in Canaan land. The Old Testament frequently uses Amorites as a synonym for Canaanites in general. The book of Genesis cites Canaan as the ancestor of the Amorites in Genesis 10.16. The sin of the Amorites reached full measure when the Nephilim giants were introduced into their race. Genesis 15.12 As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Genesis 15:17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Catamites, Hittites, Parasites, Raphanites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. So the Amorites were a tribe descended from Canaan, 
Genesis 10.16, and one of the seven whose lands were given to Israel in Deuteronomy 7.1 and Genesis 15.16. The Amorite means literally the Westerner, hence the name Amorites is generally supposed to mean Western Highlands. Numbers 13.29, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 7 through 20, Joshua 10.6, and they're also called the Tall Ones in Amos 2.9, Numbers 13.33, and Deuteronomy 2.10. The Israelites found east of the Jordan two Amorite kingdoms, that of Sihon, which lay along the Jordan from the Arnon, the Wadi Mojib, to the Jabbok, Wadi Zerka, and from the Jordan to the desert, according to Judges chapter 11, verse 21 to 22, and that of Og, king of Bashan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 4, and verse 8 through 9. As Sihon and Og attempted to act on the offensive, Israel immediately possessed their territories, according to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. God had made it very clear to the children of Israel that these giant-infested nations had to be purged. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God had commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Numbers 32-33 Then Moses gave to the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bishan, the whole land with its cities and the territory around them. The giant named Og, king of Bashan, was an Amorite chieftain. Deuteronomy 3.11 Only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephanites. His bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. Og, an Ammonite king of Bashan, ruling 60 cities, according to Joshua 13.12, chapter 12, verse 4, Genesis 14.5. After conquering Sihon's land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, Israel marched by the way of Bashan, which is north of the Jabbok. Og met them and perished with all his people, and Israel took his land. Numbers 21, 33-35 Og was of a different race, namely of the remnant of the giants, the Rephaim, before the Amorites came, Deuteronomy 3.13. The Amorites, by intermarriage with the Rephaim, were in height like that of cedars and strong as oaks, according to Amos 2.9. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. So Og, king of Bashan, was defeated by the Israelites at Edri, along with his children and his people, all exterminated, according to Numbers 21, verse 33 to 35. As we've been saying, the fact that giants are beings of abnormal size and body, having lived on this earth, is one of the most clearly stated truths in the scripture. Rapha was the name of a giant, the father of all the giants mentioned in these passages. From the original Rapha descended the Rephiams. Thus ended the mighty races of giants that were born of a union of the daughters of men and fallen angels after the flood of Noah. The Hebrew word for Rephaim means a terrible one or a giant. In 1 Chronicles 20 verse 4, it also states sons of the giant, referring to a race of aboriginal or early inhabitants east of the Jordan. 
according to Genesis 14.5, and the valley of Rephraim southwest of Jerusalem, Joshua 15 verse 8. They associated with other giant races, as in the Emim and Anabkim, Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 10 through 11, and the Zamzamim in verse 20. It is probable that they were all of the same stock, being given different names by different tribes who came in contact with them. In the Hebrew, the word Anak means a giant or long-necked. The son of Arba, he produced a race of giants called Anakim. These Anakim were a terror to the children of Israel, according to Numbers chapter 13, verse 22 and verse 28. But they were driven out by Caleb, who came into possession of Hebron, in Joshua 15, verse 13 to 14. Anak had three sons, whose descendants were giants, the Anakim. The Anakim in the Hebrew means a giant or race of fierce giants. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28, chapter 2, verse 10 through 11, Joshua 14, verse 12 and verse 15. Descended from Anak, descended from Arba, according to Joshua 15, verse 13 and 21, verse 11, dwelling in the south of Canaan near Hebron. Anak is the name of the race rather than an individual, Joshua 14.15. The three tribes bore the names of Shisha, Ahimen, and Talmai. In Numbers 13, we have an account of the children of Israel spying out the promised land that God had given them as their inheritance. However, there were occupants of that land, and not just any group of ordinary people. Let's read in Numbers 13 verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people, they are stronger than we are and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Notice the statement, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. An ordinary-sized Israelite, of 5 foot 8 inches next to a giant of over 10 feet tall and at least 5 feet wide looks kind of small in comparison. So gigantic were they that the spies sent out by Moses considered themselves as mere grasshoppers compared to the Anakim in Numbers 13 verse 28 and verse 33. Under Joshua, however, the Israelites destroyed many of the Anakim. A remnant of these giants took refuge among the Philistines in the cities of Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. According to Joshua chapter 11 verse 21 to 22, Caleb, who brought news as a spy concerning them, was eventually their destroyer in Joshua 15 verse 14. Now it was necessary for this race of giants to be completely destroyed in order to remove Satan's corrupt race of giants that stood in the way of God's people and their promised land. This was necessary in order to establish the children of Israel in their land in preparation for the coming Messiah. Joshua 10:40. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord the God of Israel had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and from the whole region to Goshen and Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, because the Lord the God of Israel fought for Israel. Yet there were still some remaining giants that escaped and found refuge in the land of the Philistines. A few hundred years later, David and his mighty men would once and for all do away with these giants. Hence, we find a giant race among the Philistines and in Gath. In David's days, 1 Samuel 17, 
in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15 to 22, an undesigned coincidence between the independent histories of Joshua and 1 and 2 Samuel confirming the truth of both. Their chief city, Hebron, became Caleb's possession for his faith, shown in having no fear of their giant stature since the Lord was on Israel's side. Joshua 15.14, Judges 1.20, and compare that with Numbers chapter 13, verse 22, verse 28, and verse 30 to 33, and chapter 14, verse 24. These giants are even represented on Egyptian monuments as tall and fair, according to their hieroglyphics. 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels, or 194 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, or 23 pounds. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath was six cubits and a span in height, which is around nine feet and nine inches tall, eighteen inches in a cubit and nine inches in a span. Second Samuel twenty-one fifteen. Once again there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishba Binaba, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed three hundred shekels or eleven pounds, and he was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David, but Abishai, son of Zerai, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us in battle, so that the lamp of Israel would not be extinguished. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sebekai the Hushkite killed Zapha, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elinai, son of Jerah-Urim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear like the shaft of a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimi, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. This same account is also found in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 4 through 8. Let's now look together at a probable purpose of Satan producing giants in the first place. It was the purpose of Satan and his fallen angels to corrupt the human race and thereby do away with pure Adamite stock through whom the seed of the woman should come. This would avert their own doom and make it possible for Satan and his kingdom to keep control of the planet Earth indefinitely. It was said to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman should defeat Satan and restore man's dominion, Genesis 3.15. The only way, then, for Satan to avoid the predicted defeat was to corrupt the pure Adamite line so that the coming of the seed of the woman into the world would be impossible. This he tried to accomplish by sending some of his fallen angels to marry the daughters of men, according to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1-4, through and produce a nation of giants through them. So we see in scriptures that there are two such eruptions of fallen angels taught in Genesis 6-4. There were giants in the earth in those days before the flood and also after the flood, when the sons of God, fallen angels, came unto the daughters of men and they bore children to them, to these angels who had taken human form. Satan almost succeeded in his plan during the first eruption, for all flesh had corrupted their ways upon the earth. 
And of all the multitudes, Noah and his sons were the only godly righteous men who sought after God and were of pure Adamite lineage to be preserved by the ark. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8-13 through 13. The main object of the flood was to do away with this satanic corruption, destroy the giants and ungodly people, and preserve the pure Adamite stock so as to make good the guarantee of the coming of the seed of the woman as set forth in the plan of God. Being defeated before the flood did not stop Satan from making another attempt to prevent the coming of the Redeemer, who was to be his final downfall. It was to his advantage that God had promised never to send another universal flood upon the earth. Satan therefore probably reasoned that he should make a second attempt to do away with Adamite stock. With the promise that God will never send another universal flood upon the earth, this is a probable explanation for the second group of fallen angels being sent to take on human form and to marry the daughters of men. Once again, the unions produced giants called Rephaim or Nephilim, and races of them occupied the land of promise where the promised seed of the woman should be born, promised in advance to Abraham. If Satan could establish a stronghold of these perverted giants in the promised land of Israel, the hope was that God could not bring the seed of the woman through Abraham's lineage in that region occupied by the Nephilim. Satan had gambled that God could not send another worldwide flood to eliminate the giant races. But again, that's not a problem for the Lord to find another way. This explains why God had commanded Israel to kill them all, every last one of them, even to the last man, woman, and child. Just as in the time of Noah, every man, woman, and child, with the exception of Noah and his family, was destroyed by the flood. This ungodly corruption and contamination of sin had to be completely exterminated in order for God to fulfill his eternal plan and give the world its promised Redeemer. Now that the Redeemer has come, it appears that Satan is reserving his forces for the last stand at the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7-9. through 9. Remember, according to Jude 6 and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, when fallen angels crossed the line to intermarry and produce these races of giants, they were judged by God and sent to the abyss, the bottomless pit in the heart of the earth, in order to await their final judgment. Thus, it is clear from Scripture that there were giants in the earth before and after the flood, and that they came from an unholy union of fallen angels with human women. So why is it important to know all this? Well, first, Satan adversely opposes the purpose of God and will do all he can to thwart it, to cause God's word to become null and void, which is an impossible task, by the way. Number two, one of the enemy's chief tactics is to introduce ungodly influences in order to contaminate, pollute, defile, and corrupt people. And number three, God will judge and amputate such leprous corruption in the human race in order to preserve godliness. Here are just a few examples. The worldwide flood during Noah's time, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Canaanite nations that Israel exterminated. It is really the mercy of God to judge and purge such reprobate and irrevocably evil from the earth in order to preserve future generations from being born in such lands and to be helplessly made subject to such evil that basically dooms their existence to wickedness. Though God gave them all an opportunity to repent, they chose not to. Unlike Nineveh, when Jonah preached a message of repentance to them, they repented and avoided God's judgment. That was how God dealt with the nations of the Old Testament. Now that we live in the dispensation of grace, God deals with people and nations in quite a different manner. 
Now, getting back to Noah, we see why God had decided to purge the earth of this race of Nephilim as a result of Satan poisoning the pure bloodline of Adam's original pedigree lineage. With the exception of Noah and his family, it appears that the entire race at that time may have entirely become a mixture of fallen angels and men, having produced giants in the world. God chooses representative pairs of animals to perpetuate their species, and God chose Noah and his family to give mankind a new clean start after the flood. Genesis 6 verse 12. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Job 22.15 Will you keep to the old path that evil men have trod? They were carried off before their time, their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, Leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? In Genesis 6.9, we see that Noah was a righteous man that had walked with God. This speaks of his moral character and godliness in following after the Lord. But this verse also states that he was blameless among the people of his time. Now what's interesting is that the Hebrew word for blameless, which means without blemish, is a technical word for bodily perfection. Hence it is used of the sacrificial animals of the Old Covenant, which had to be of pure stock without blemish. Exodus 12.5, chapter 29, verse 1, Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, and without spot, according to Numbers 19.2, 28 verse 3 through 11, and undefiled, Psalms 119 verse 1. So bottom line, Noah and his family were both godly in character and pure Adamite stock, unspoiled by the introduction of half-human and half-angelic Nephilim. The Ark and Deluge, up to 1850 AD, there was no ship in the history of the world as large as the Ark. The capacity of the Ark was equivalent in tonnage to more than 600 freight cars, which would form a train about 4 miles long and capable of handling over 90 million pounds. The ark was easily big enough for all it was to hold. The fish and the other sea creatures stayed in the sea. Insects were small, as well as snakes and lizards. The average size of most mammals was no larger than a dog. The birds could have easily lodged in the ceilings or been hung in cages. An ox is allowed 20 square feet on a modern vessel. If this much room was allowed in the ark for each of the larger animals, there would have been ample room for all including food for a year and 17 days. Recent archaeological findings at Nippur disclosed that the ark had a sewage system unsurpassed by that of any modern city and that there were openings for light and ventilation in each story. Genesis 6 verse 14 so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Remember Enoch, who walked with God and then was taken when he was 365 years old, in Genesis 5.24. Before he was taken, he had a son named Methuselah, which means, when he is dead, it, the deluge, shall come. He spoke prophetically of the flood. His son lived to a ripe old age of 969 years. 
when he finally died, the flood came. Hebrews 11.5 By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Jude 14 Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. So throughout the hundred years Noah and his family were building the ark, they were warning the people of the coming judgment if they did not repent. You can just imagine at that time that word must have gotten around that a huge boat was being constructed far inland. In spite of how it looked and sounded at the time, Noah took God at his word and obeyed. Even though up to that time it had not yet rained on the earth, the whole earth was surrounded by a canopy of water in the sky that created a greenhouse effect globally. Genesis chapter 1 verse 7. Also in Genesis 2 6, spoke of streams and a mist coming up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Hebrews 11.7 By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The ark is a type of Jesus. When we are in him, we are saved from the judgment of sin. Genesis 6.18 But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Imagine the miracle of being able to secure a pair of every animal, male and female, that God had created and place them all in the ark. Genesis 6.19 You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground, will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. According to the scripture, God caused all these animals to come on their own accord in order to preserve their own species. Genesis 7-8 Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. Let's now talk about the deluge. In Genesis 7-1, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Around 100 years had passed, and apparently no one listened or were interested in Noah's pleas to escape the coming judgment. Genesis 7-6, Now Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. When the time came for the flood to begin, Genesis 7.16 states, Then the Lord shut Noah in. When Noah and his family and all the animals entered the ark, God himself shut its door to ensure their safety against the raging flood in Genesis 7.16. In this way, God sealed the judgment against the ungodly who had refused to heed Noah's warning. Matthew 24:37 Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. 
and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. 1 Peter 3.20 Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. When the catastrophe came, the physical means employed were twofold, namely, the breaking up of the springs of the great deep and the opening of the floodgates in heaven, in Genesis 7.11. But the rain is spoken of as continuing as a main cause for only 40 days, while the waters continued to prevail for 150 days, according to Genesis 7.24. The ark rose to a height of 20 feet above the highest mountains. Genesis 7, verse 17. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than twenty feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. God had sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Also, the springs of the deep and the floodgates, or canopy of the heavens, had been closed, and the rain stopped. Eventually, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down, and on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now Ararat is the mountainous region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea where Noah's ark rested when the flood subsided, according to Genesis 8.4. From this region, streams converged to form the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Originally, Ararat referred to the whole mountainous area. Its use, however, has gradually come to be restricted to the huge volcanic mountain at the borders of Turkey and Iran and the Soviet Union. This volcanic mountain includes two peaks, 5,600 meters or 17,000 feet and 4,200 meters and 13,000 feet above sea level. The taller peak rises 920 meters or 3,000 feet above the line of perpetual snow. Some believe that Noah's Ark still rests on Mount Ararat, and occasionally, expeditions have been launched to find it. However, shifting glaciers, avalanches, hidden crevices, and sudden storms make the mountain so difficult to climb that it is referred to by the native inhabitants of that region as the Painful Mountain. So the Ark had rested 40 days before the flood subsided sufficiently to suggest disembarking when a raven, which could easily find its food on the carcasses of the animals which had been destroyed, was sent forth and did not return according to Genesis 8-7.
But a dove sent out at the same time found no rest and returned empty to the ark in verse 9. After seven days, however, it was sent out again and returned with a fresh olive leaf, according to verse 11. After seven days more, the dove was sent forth again and did not return. After 56 days of more waiting, Noah and his family departed from the ark. Noah, his family, and all the animals were in the ark for one year and 17 days. First, God told them to enter the ark seven days before the flood would come. Genesis chapter 7, verse 4 through 10. The deluge began on the 17th day of the second month. Genesis 7:11. They left the ark on the 27th day of the second month the following year. Genesis 8:14. Compared with other traditions of the deluge, the resemblances are striking. However, the biblical account is obviously more credible. It is most interesting that there is a general knowledge throughout the ancient world of a global flood long ago. Certainly, the general prevalence of such traditions strongly confirms the reality of the biblical story. Concerning the Egyptian tradition, an Egyptian legend of the deluge is referred to in Plato's Timaeus, where the gods are said to have purified the earth by a great flood of water from which only a few shepherds escaped by climbing to the summit of a high mountain. In Indian mythology, there is no reference to the flood in the Rig Veda, but in the laws of Manu, we are told that a fish said to Manu, A deluge will sweep all creatures away. Build a vessel and worship me. When the waters rise, enter the vessel and I will save thee. The Chinese tradition is embodied in a sublime language in their book Li Qi. And now the pillars of heaven were broken. The earth shook to its very foundation. The sun and the stars changed their motions. The earth fell to pieces, and the waters enclosed within its blossom burst forth with violence and overflowed. Man having rebelled against heaven, the system of the universe was totally disordered and the grand harmony of nature destroyed. The Greeks, according to Plutarch, had five different traditions of the deluge, that Deucalion being the most important. According to this, Prothemus warned his son Deucalion of the flood which Zeus had resolved to bring upon the earth by reason of its wickedness. Concerning the British tradition, in Britain there is a druid legend that on account of the destruction of mankind, the supreme being sent a flood upon the earth when the waves of the sea lifted themselves on high around the border of Britain. The rain poured down from heaven and the waters covered the earth. Among the American Indian traditions of the deluge were found by travelers to be widely disseminated. Mr. Catlin says, Among the 120 different tribes which I visited in North, South, and Central America, not a tribe exists that has not related to me distinct or vague traditions of such a calamity, in which one or three or eight persons were saved above the waters upon the top of a high mountain. Finally, we come upon the Babylonian tradition. The most instructive of these traditions are those which have come down to us from Babylonia, which until recently were known to us only through the Greek historian Berossus of the 4th century BC, who narrates that a great deluge happened at some indefinite time in the past during the reign of Exthus, son of Ardates. Exthus was warned beforehand by the deity Kronos and told to build a ship and take with him his friends and relations and all the different animals with all necessary food and trust himself fearlessly to the deep, whereupon he built a vessel five stata or three thousand feet long and two stata twelve hundred feet broad. After the flood subsided, Exthus 
like Noah, sent out birds which returned to him again. After waiting some days and sending them out a second time, they returned with their feet tinged with mud. So once it was safe for Noah and the animals to emerge from the ark onto dry ground, God gave them the green light. They must have been so grateful to step on dry ground after being on the ark for just over a year. Noah is grateful to the Lord who had delivered him from the flood. After the flood, he built an altar to God and made a sacrifice. Just as Abel offered a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin, Noah also followed in those godly footsteps. This was God's method of dealing with sin and restoring fellowship. Certainly, it contributed to God making a covenant with Noah and his sons to never flood the earth again. Genesis 8.20 Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Genesis 8.21 The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all the living creatures, as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. God's covenant with Noah, God's blessing and directives for mankind after the flood. In Genesis 9 verse 1, the Lord also blessed Noah and restored the creation command, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. These were the same words he had spoken earlier to Adam in Genesis 1.28. In verse 2, the animals pre-flood evidently had a certain relationship with man. They had come calmly to the ark in close proximity with each other and with Noah and his family. After the flood, in order to protect mankind, God sovereignly put the fear of man into animals. In verse 3, after the flood, man's diet changed to include the consumption of animals and animals eating other animals. Before the flood, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 29 and 30, man was given the fruit from the trees to eat, and all the animals on the ground were given every green plant for food. They were all vegetarians, but no longer. Genesis 9 verse 4, We are instructed not to consume blood, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is sacred to God, then and today. If a person murders another person, according to God's universal law, his or her life should be made forfeit for the life that was taken from the earth. Genesis 9 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. So this is how God views murder. Of people walking on the earth or in the womb, blood is spilled in both cases, and in God's eyes, abortion is murder too. God makes an everlasting covenant with all life on the earth to last throughout all generations. He will never again destroy all life on the earth by a flood. As a sign of this covenant, the presence of a rainbow appears for the first time and becomes a perpetual reminder for us and God that even though man is wicked and deserves to be wiped out, God will honor his covenant with mankind and will not destroy the earth with another flood. Psalms 104 verse 6 You covered it with the deep as with the garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys, to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Remember, up to that point, 
there was a canopy of water that encircled the entire globe with a layer of water vapor, Genesis 1-7. This protected life on earth from harmful ultraviolet rays from the sun and created a lush greenhouse effect. This canopy acted as a shield from the sun's harmful rays and prolonged man's life to many hundreds of years. Remember Methuselah lived to almost a thousand years. Without direct sunlight passing through and no rain, there was never a rainbow to be seen. When the flood took place, the canopy collapsed, contributing to the flood, but also creating the current weather system and patterns that we are now experiencing today. As a result, after the flood, the introduction of cold and heat, summer and winter, in Genesis 8.22 is mentioned by God as a perpetual experience. Without the protective canopy, life on earth changed dramatically after the flood. Deserts and polar caps developed. Distinct seasons of the year came into being. In Genesis 6.3, God spoke prophetically that the days of man's life would be shortened to 120 years. This became a reality after the flood. With the protective canopy removed, the harmful rays of the sun accelerated the aging process of mankind. It was probably a good thing. If you can imagine an evil person becoming increasingly evil for hundreds of years due to such a long life, that kind of perfected wickedness is what probably resulted in God's judgment back then. This is also why God prevented man from eating from the tree of life in Genesis 3.22 to live a natural life forever in a sinful fallen state. Genesis 6.3 Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Now Noah had three sons, and through these three men came the current nations of the earth. Every human being alive today is a descendant of Adam and Eve all the way through Noah and then one of the three sons of Noah. Genesis 9.18 The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Now Noah became the first tiller of the soil and keeper of vineyards after the flood. Then came the element of intoxication. Noah entered upon agricultural pursuits and began to cultivate the vine. Whether in ignorance of its properties or the post-flood climate changes, we do not know. But Noah drank wine until intoxicated and shamefully exposed himself in his tent. Ham, seeing the nakedness of his father, displayed a lascivious bent of character and told his brothers, who reverently covered their father with a garment, walking backwards that they may not see his nakedness. For this they received their father's blessing, whereas Ham reaped for his son Canaan a prophetic curse. Genesis 9.20 Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders when they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After this, we hear no more of the patriarch, but the sum of his years. Genesis 9.28 After the flood, 
Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years and then he died. Table of Nations It is interesting to note that all races, colors, and distinctive physical characteristics of people came into being after the flood, since Noah and his three sons and their wives were the only survivors of the Great Deluge. Even though today we may have many distinct ethnic groups, we must remember we all came from the same family tree. Now that we are in Christ, the Bible makes it clear that race and gender is not a spiritual characteristic. We all have the same equal standing before God through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Genesis 10.1 This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. In general, Japheth settled in the north, west, and east Europe and in Asia. Ham settled in Africa and parts of Arabia and the land God promised to Abraham. Shem settled in the countries surrounding Palestine to the east. There are evidences, they say, that Hebrew was the original language of the whole earth. It is noteworthy that it is the one God used to give his revelation of the Old Testament to mankind. The descendants of Shem are recorded in Genesis chapter 10 verse 22 to 30. Now the descendants of Shem are very important in the Old Testament because it is through his lineage that Abraham, the nation of Israel, and Jesus Christ born of a virgin Mary, were all descendants of Shem. Genesis chapter 11 verse 10 to 32, Luke chapter 3 verse 23 to 38, and Romans chapter 9 verse 4 and 5. The descendants of Ham are recorded in Genesis chapter 10 verse 6 through 7 and verse 13 to 19. Of the nationalities regarded as descended from Ham, none can be described as really black. First on the list as being the darkest is Cush or Ethiopia in Genesis 10 6 after which comes Mitzriam, or Egypt, then Put, or Libya, and Canaan last. The sons or descendants of each of these are taken in turn, and it is noteworthy that some of them, like the Ethiopians and the Canaanites, spoke Sem and not Hamatic. Concerning Egypt, the land of Ham, as mentioned in Psalm 78.51 and chapter 105 verse 23, are referred to as black or sunburnt as those whose soil is black as Ethiopia means, father of Cush, Egypt, Libya, and Canaan. These refer to races, not individuals. Egypt, being the first civilized, was singled out as the chief country of the Hamite settlements. Solid grandeur characterized the Hamite architecture as in the earliest of Egypt, Babylonia, and southern Arabia. The first steps in the arts and sciences seemingly are due to the Hamites. The earliest empires were theirs their power of organization being great. Material rather than moral greatness was theirs. Hence, their civilization, though early, decayed sooner than that of Shem and Japheth races. And finally, the descendants of Japheth are recorded in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2 through 5. Japheth means enlargement or extension. This was true of him, for his posterity spread over all the earth, which includes the natives of northern Europe, such as the Gauls, the Celts, and in later times as the Germans, French, Welsh, Irish, Britons, and various Anglo-Saxon races. These all came from the three sons of Gomer, who is a descendant of Japheth. Also from Japheth came the ancient Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Italians, the Spaniards, the Portuguese, also those from Cyprus and Mediterranean coasts, also the Georgians, the Cappadocians, and other Asian and European races, even those who now inhabit Russia. 
Genesis 10.32 These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now let's talk about Nimrod. Nimrod is actually an interesting individual that's mentioned in the book of Genesis. The Hebrew name Nimrod means let us rebel, given by his contemporaries to Nimrod as one who ever had in his mouth such words to stir up his band to rebellion. Nimrod had subverted the existing patriarchal order of society by setting up a chieftainship based on personal valor and maintained by aggression. Genesis chapter 10 verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew up to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akdad, and Kelni in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rebenuth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Nimrod's designation as a hunter of men clearly connects him with the founding of the military state based on absolute force and tyranny. He lorded it over others, hunting and destroying all who opposed him in his despotic rule over men. This is the meaning understood by Josephus. Now Josephus said that Nimrod persuaded men not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to him as the cause of it. He became a great leader, taught men to centralize, and defied God to send another flood, hence the Tower of Babel, was built for the purpose of astrology and a means of protection from another flood. Nimrod, a Hamite, intruded into Shem's territory, violently set up an empire of conquest, beginning with Babel, built in present-day Iraq. Babel was a symbol of world power in hostility to God. It is said that Nimrod hunted down wild beasts also, which were killing many people and taught men to build walls around cities for protection against them. He established the first kingdom and the first great universal false religion opposing God. Since the flood of Noah, this was done before the Lord, that is, openly in the presence of God, with all defiance. That is why God came down to see Babel and then took action to counteract the rebellion of Nimrod. As a result, he abandoned Babel for a time after the miraculous confusion of tongues and went and founded Asher and Nineveh. The Tower of Babel and Division of the Earth In the 100 years after the flood, mankind traveled from Mount Ararat in Armenia to the east of the Euphrates where they settled. Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. A Babylonian description of the Tower of Babel discovered in 1876 indicates there was a grand court 900 by 1156 feet and a smaller one by 450 and 1056 feet, inside of which was a platform with walls about it, having four gates on each side. In the center stood a lower with many small shrines at the base dedicated to various gods. The tower itself was 300 feet high with decreased width in stages from the lowest to the highest point. Each was a square. On the very top platform measured 60 by 80 feet was a sanctuary for the false god bel Madarak and signs of the zodiac. The builders evidently finished the tower, for the work was stopped on the city only. 
Genesis 11, verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. That is saying something when God made the statement, If as one people speaking the same language they begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them? Here we see the power of unity for good or for evil. Supernaturally, God caused all the people to take on different languages so they could no longer understand each other. As a result, the people were scattered as was God's intent. History has shown that when people come together in large groups, Satan gets in there and perverts it for evil. By God scattering the people of the earth, there is a greater likelihood they will seek God instead of building a secular world empire that can only magnify sin. Acts 17.26 From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So people were not divided as to tongues and nations until after the event of Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 through 9. Hence Genesis 10 gives the earliest division of men after the confusion of tongues and before the division of the earth into continents and islands which took place in the days of Peleg. Genesis 10.25 Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Jokten. Now in the Hebrew, Peleg means earthquake, the son of Shem. This explains the word Peleg. In his days, the earth was divided into continents and islands after the various nations were scattered abroad from the one landmass at the time of the divine judgment of Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. When you consider the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it gives one an idea of the origin of the various races of mankind and shows clearly God's original plan was to have separate races of various colors and distinct types after the flood. It is plainly evident that God segregated and scattered the people abroad on the face of the earth and then divided the one landmass into islands and continents as it is today so that they may seek after God and find him. Bottom line, God wants every human being to be reconciled back to him. 1 Timothy 2.4 God who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is the judge of all mankind. Hebrews 12.23 You have come to God, the judge of all men. Before Jesus came to earth, God set a standard of salvation that used the human conscience as the judge. If people sought after God and followed their conscience as God revealed himself, God would be the judge of their hearts after death. Romans chapter 2 verse 14 Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. 
But now that Jesus has come, God expects all mankind to put their faith in his Son in order to receive salvation. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4:12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Acts 17:28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all humanity by raising him from the dead. I trust that you have found this episode insightful and informative. The 1,656 years from Adam to Noah's flood were a significant part of our human history on the earth. For myself, a great takeaway is that God's word can never fail. No matter how hard the devil tries to thwart and nullify God's word, he always fails and always will. As Jesus said in Matthew 24:35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God bless. I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life Study Series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. God's Word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And in chapter two, verse six, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.